0: week six. <laughs> Go, girl. Well, seamlessly, because I wanted to say thank you to Emily. As she thought, last week she really brought that passage to life. I loved her infectious passion and her very evident love for the Lord and for his word. So thank you. Go, Emily. Today we're going to roll into the last part of chapter three, And the first part of chapter 4, which means we're halfway. If you remember, I said, loosely speaking, the first two chapters, there are six chapters, the first two are personal, very narrative for Paul. Uh, Chapters 3 and 4 are are foundational, doctrinal. And then chapters 5 and 6, he really starts to open it up into the practical. So at this stage, we're we're still in that foundational doctrinal stretch. You know, there's some really significant material in this section. Two weeks ago, which was the last time I preached, I quoted Joyce Meyer. I want to start with that quote today because it sets the scene quite nicely, I think. And the context of the quote was, was the danger of making Christianity overtly legalistic, which of course, what the Judaizers were trying to do, making it all about those rules and those regulations. And in doing so, essentially setting up new believers to fail. Joyce's quote goes something like this, I think it is a tragedy to teach new believers in Christ what they should do and how they need to change. Great. Isn't that what we need? Someone else telling us what we do. Someone else telling us what we change. We need to change. We know that already. So without first teaching them who they are in Christ, that they are justified and made right with God by grace through faith. He loves them unconditionally. And then she said, when people are, are deeply rooted in God's love and acceptance, she says that they actually want to change and then easily cooperate with the Holy Spirit, who is the great changer. So, what I think she's saying here is that you cannot put the cart before the horse. If, if you try to, to drive behavior change before heart change, it just won't work. You must not get your gospel grammar wrong. Remember your gospel grammar? The gospel grammar is, is that the indicative of grace must precede the imperative of human response. In other words, if we try to to fulfil all the demanding imperatives of Scripture, and there are many and they are demanding, if we try and fulfil those through sheer human effort and willpower, we'll fall flat. But once we've got grace, that grace then enables and empowers us to do the things that before seemed unattainable, seemed impossible. So Joyce Meyer is saying, only once you really know who you are in Christ, only once you realize that Jesus did it, so we don't have to keep on continually doing it, Only once you really get God's love and realize it is freely given and not earned, only then is growth possible and change possible and fruit-bearing possible. So back to Galatians 3, having explained and fought for the purity of the true gospel, having shown the Jews, how, how key Old Testament principles and events underpin that gospel, Paul starts to teach about identity and about what that means and what it changes and how identity influences behavior. There are three parts to, to the identity revelation say revolution revelation Uh, and these verses the first one and we'll we'll go through these one by one the first one is in Christ we belong number two is in Christ we are no longer slaves but heirs and the number three in Christ we are sons of God crying Abba father elements of all of those statements in the songs we've just sung, actually. And all that ties together, we're going to do from 3.26 to 4.7 today. All that's tied together in the last verse, verse 7, which says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's go quickly through each of these. Let's start by reading uh, verses 26 to 29, the rest of chapter 3 which says this, familiar verses, I should think. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You know, these are real stake in the ground verses. Verse 26 For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. A a simple statement, but, but look at the momentous words there. You are all. Give me a wave if you're all. Give me a wave if you're not all. Give me a wave if you wave whatever I asked. Okay, you're all all. Okay, we are all. All children. Children. What a, what a momentous word. Through faith. In Christ Jesus. Momentous words. Verse 27. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Now, clothing is not just about fashion. It's about identity. And it's about belonging. Think of your favorite football team's bright, shiny red shirts. That was for Julie. Go to the forest. You know, that clothing speaks of who you are, and it speaks of whose you are. And we have put on Christ. In other words, a completely new set of garments, no longer those rags of righteousness that Isaiah talks about in chapter 64, verse 6. Instead, we have we have put on, we've been arrayed with the, the garments of salvation, and we've we've put on Christ's robe of righteousness. And then verse 28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. I think that pretty much covers us all. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a massive, massive statement. And it's this your identity is not determined by your nationality, it's not determined by your status, it's not determined by your gender. Your identity is determined by your adoption into God's family through Christ. And you become a child of God. One in Christ Jesus. We know, don't we, that Christ broke down all those barriers. He broke down the cultural barriers. He broke down class barriers. And he broke down gender barriers. And as Paul would have, would have known only too well, the Pharisee would pray each morning a prayer that went something like this. Thank you, God, that you've not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In their society, Gentiles and slaves and women just did not belong. But Jesus changed the paradigm. In Christ Everyone belongs in Christ Everyone is valuable in Christ. Everyone is equally loved Our worth is not determined by any of those three distinctions ESV says there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus you could be more excited about that <laughs> just saying the same you know this really was revolutionary this was this, this is a pivotal verse verse 29 and now that you belong to Christ you are the true children of Abraham you are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you there's that word belong in Christ you are true children of Abraham In Christ, you are his heirs. A new word that we'll get into in a minute. In Christ, you stand in the fullness of God's rich promises to Abraham. So identity revelation, number one, is in Christ, we belong. Number two is this. In Christ, we are no longer slaves, but heirs. We'll slip into the ESV, English Standard Version, uh, for a bit, and you'll see why in a minute. Verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this section needs a little little cultural context. And if you remember last week, Emily introduced a a character, a family servant who served as a guardian or as a babysitter. And their role was was to keep you safe while you travelled to school, as you negotiated the big, wide, scary world, before you became independent as an adult. And last week's message essentially was this, as children, you needed a babysitter. But now Christ has come, and the law has been fulfilled, that guardian, which was the law, is no longer required. In other words, the law has served its purpose. And here's the extension of that idea in these verses. Paul in essence says that that as a child, you are in reality no better off than a slave. You have no real freedom or control. One day you will inherit, but but at the moment that's not doing you a great deal of good. You have a guardian monitoring your every move. Everything is directed and done for you you are no better off than a slave But that is simply no longer the case because as we just read in chapter 3 verse 29 and now that you belong to Christ you are the true children of Abraham you are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you in Jewish and Roman and Greek cultures they all had lavish coming-of-age Ceremonies. The point at which you ceased to be a child and entered adulthood. And you no longer required that guardian. You stepped into a position as the rightful heir of the father's estate. And here's Paul's message Why Why would you go back to being a child? when you can have all the rights and privileges of adulthood? Why would you want to go back to being a slave when you can be free? Why would you still see yourself as a labourer when in fact you're an inheritor? The reality is that in Christ everything changes. Here's a parallel passage, Romans 8, 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are no longer... A child who needs babysitting, i.e. the law. You are no longer a slave obligated to a master, also the law. And you know you are no longer a labourer who needs to earn acceptance and favour and blessing, again the law. Instead now you are free, now you are a son. Now you are an heir. The sad reality is that many Christians continue to act and think and speak the same way as they did pre-Jesus, the same way as they did before all of this kicked in at their conversion. And so they still behave like a child. They still live like a slave. They still try to earn it like a laborer. Here's the good news of the gospel. That is no longer who you are. And what a shame to to live bound up and frustrated and defeated when you could live like the son of a king. When you could have a life characterized by victory and freedom and joy and hope. And that leads nicely into our Next section, do you know what? It just keeps on getting better and better because number three, identity revelation number three is in Christ, we are sons of God, crying, Abba, Father. Chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the Greco-Roman world, a childless man could adopt one of his servants. And at the moment of, of adoption that they ceased to be a slave and instead received all the legal and financial privileges and benefits of sonship. They received a new identity. They entered into a new Relationship. They had a new status, and they had a full inheritance. This is a remarkable picture of what Jesus has done for us, that we have been redeemed, that we have been bought out of slavery, slavery to sin and slavery to death, slavery to law, slavery to cycles of frustration and failure. And Instead, we have been given the full rights of sonship. Now, I told you that I got five commentaries that I was working through. I've got my work cut out here. Tim Keller, moment of grace. Tim Keller passed away this week. Sad moment. So we can extend him lots of grace. He said this. He said, the use of the word sons is significant because it means legal heir. Because in most ancient cultures, women couldn't inherit property. They had no rank, they had no social standing, and they had zero inheritance. But Galatians 3, 28 changed all of that. And as a result, women too could be called sons of God. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, in gospel currency, we are all sons of God. And His. The point that Tim Keller's making quite neatly here, if it merely said child of God, which it does in the New Living Translation, which is why I switched over into the ESV, if it merely said child of God, it would fall well short of the intended meaning. That we all become heirs. Tim Keller said this, I love this, it makes me smile. Perhaps that's because I'm a man. If we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim that is, and certainly was to that audience and that ear in that day. And then he said this, which made me chuckle. He said, men are the bride of Christ, and women are sons of God. There we go. So get over it, everybody. (laughs) How does that then relate to this kind of feisty recurring problem that that had led Paul to write this letter in the first place? Of course, those Judaizers kept trying to drag the, the bewitched and foolish Galatians out of sonship and back into slavery. Out of inheritance and back into childhood. Out of grace and back into law. Remember the story of the prodigal son. I'm going to part there for a few minutes. Luke chapter 15. Remember that story. When the prodigal son crashed and burned, which he did quite spectacularly and totally, he went back expecting and indeed deserving to be a hired servant. Remember? What happened instead? Much to his surprise, his father took mercy on him. The text says that he came running, embraced him, and he lavished on him the full benefits of sonship, as demonstrated by the provision of three things, a robe, a ring, a pair of sandals. So the robe represented, we talked about clothing, the robe represented his identity as a member of the royal family. The ring represented his authority, think of a signet ring, think of sealing you know a, a, a document with wax. Right, that, that ring represented his authority as the king's own son. And the sandals represented liberty in that time, slaves went barefoot, but sons wore shoes. Meanwhile, with all that is going on, of course, the older brother took offence. Because as far as he was concerned, and he was probably right, the younger son hadn't earned it, and he certainly didn't deserve it, and he didn't. And he himself, the older brother, was a, was a jolly good labourer. And he deserved to enjoy the fruits of that labor, not least the fattened calf. He was completely missing the point. As a son, you are not a hired servant. You are an heir. Luke 15, 29, he said, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders father said, verse 31, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. You see how he's mistaking those two positions. So even though he was a son, he was allowing himself to live bound up by religious and legalistic thinking, meaning he was functionally living as a slave. And here's Paul's message in this section. Don't do that. It's why he called them foolish Galatians. Why would you live as a child when you could enjoy the life of an adult? Why would you act like a slave when in reality you're a son? Why would you try to earn it like a laborer when you can receive it by faith as an inheritor? Again, many Christians get seduced into this same mindset. and They behave like a child, and they live like a slave, and they try to earn it like a laborer. When, like the prodigal son, Ashley, the father has given you a robe, speaking of your identity, a ring of your authority, and sandals, speaking of liberty. So the robe goes like this everywhere you go, you stand in the fullness of your new identity in Christ. That you have been redeemed and you have been justified and you have been made righteous. That you have been accepted and adopted and you belong. That you have been called and chosen, that you are co heirs with Christ. That is your identity. That's your robe. The second part is is the ring. Everywhere you go, you carry the delegated authority of sonship. With the weight of heaven's promises behind you, with the double-edged sword in your hand, with power of attorney, to use the name of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit inside of you, guiding and inspiring and empowering you. Thirdly, everywhere you go, you wear those sandals. You walk in radical freedom. Free from the stranglehold of sin. Free from the grip of bondage. Free from the voice of condemnation. Free from the deception of the enemy. Free to be you. Free to be everything he's created you, to be able to do everything he's called you to. One final verse before we respond. Verse 6. And because you are sons, give me a wave, you sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, capital S, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, all of this radically changes your relationship with God. He is no longer the lawgiver, calling you to account. He is no longer a slave master with a big stick ready to punish every indiscretion. He is no longer a withholder where blessing must be earned and favor must be deserved. Why? Because you are his son and heir. Instead, he is Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. Aramaic word expressing the the intimacy of relationship between father and son. Instead, verse 6, you have the spirit of his son in your heart. And now you obey, not not out of external obligation, but out of internal abundance. And you can cry out, Abba, Father. Invitation to relationship intimacy of fellowship and the privilege of prayer. How do we respond to all that? You know, so much comes down to identity. How do you see yourself? And actually, the the entire outworking of your Christian life will depend on how you answer that question. You see, if you mistake your identity, that that will confuse your motives, it it will shift your goals, and actually it will paralyze your growth. The flip to that is when you truly understand your identity in Christ, everything slots into place. When you realize he has given you a robe and a ring and sandals, your view of yourself, indeed your view of everything else, changes utterly. So going full circle back to Joyce Meyer, what she say, first teach them who they are in Christ, that they are justified and made right with God by grace through faith, and that he loves them unconditionally. And then when people are rooted in God's love and acceptance, then they want to change and easily cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So if the worship team would like to come to the front, please. I'm going to give you two questions to take the Lord this morning. Very personal, very intimate questions. Question number one is this. Do you see yourself... What do you see? What do you see? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see yourself as a labourer or an inheritor? As I said, whether you look through the one lens or the other will radically change your view of everything. For you, is is it about working and deserving and earning and striving? Or is it about faith and trust and relationship? Do you understand what God has promised you as an heir? What that means? Are you standing in the reality of that? Or are you allowing your expectation to fall way, way short? Question number one, do you see yourself as a laborer Or an inheritor? Question number two, obvious one. Do you see yourself as a slave or a son? Are you pursuing intimacy with God as your abba father? Or are you trying to placate him constantly because you see him as a vengeful master? Are you doing it because a slave has to? Because a son gets to is it to keep the the status quo ticking along and to avoid censure or is it the overflow of god's grace christ's authority and the holy spirit's power as i said how you see yourself through both of those pairs of lens will radically change how you see yourself, it'll actually change how you see the person sitting next to you, it'll change how you relate to God, it'll change everything. That's why at this point, Paul really, really digs into it. Yes, we know the gospel, we understand the gospel, thank God we'd be justified by it. Now, let's talk about who you are in Christ. And then in verses chapters 5 and 6, he'll start talking about what that means and where it goes. How do we Avoid the works of the flesh. How do we get in the fruit of the Spirit? I invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. Um, as always, we have a prayer ministry team over this side that would love to pray for you. If there's anything stirring in your heart, any burdens on your shoulders, you'd love to leave here. Don't worry about giving to God. He's plenty capable enough of looking after them for you or if there's anything related to this message, anything deep in there, I just can't get past, go and see them and let them pray the promises of God over you. If you want to do business with God on your own, come and sit before the lovely banner. Mind yourself, God made them all. And just spend some time just asking God those questions. But what do I need to see? What, do I, what perspective needs to shift here? What do I need to really get so I can step into the fullness of my status as a son of God and a co-heir with Christ. We'll let that run for a few minutes while the worship team pray and then tree will wrap up. But I'm going to pray. Father God, we are in awe of what Jesus has done for us. And we sung it twice. We know that back in the day, I was a wretch. I was a sinner, but now I've been saved. Now I'm a saint. Now I'm a son. Now I'm an heir. Quite remarkable. The beauty of the gospel, the power of the gospel. And this letter, Lord, to Galatians is all about making that reality in our lives. So it's not just theory, it's not just a good book and a nice letter, but actually it makes an impact in our lives that we become set free. We're all bound up in some ways, we all look Through slightly distorted lenses at times. Holy Spirit, as, as your word ministers to our hearts and minds today, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do that work in us? Would you show us what we need to see beyond the limitations of my words? Holy Spirit, would you shine your light? And our prayer is, Lord, that as we walk out these doors at the end, we will know that I don't need to do so as a gibbering slave. Do so as a son of the King. I'm not a laborer who has to desperately, frantically earn and work and strive, but I have inherited the fullness of promises and the riches of all that Christ did. Holy Spirit, come do that work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.